Welcome to this special edition of the Ambition Podcast, kindly sponsored by S&P Global Market Intelligence. I'm David Woodshale, Director of Marketing and Communications at AMBA and BGA. While we can speculate about its long-term economic, social and political consequences, the coronavirus has pushed us into a transformation. Policymakers, corporations and investors are taking note of the fragility of current frameworks. From wildfires in the US to global social unrest and severe economic impacts on governments, globally there is a desire for a shift to sustainable business and growth, a desire for resilience. Environmental, social and governance, or ESG, issues are in the spotlight as cross-sector markets push to create more resilience in their investments, hiring and governance. And now, more than ever, it has become imperative for investment in resilient and sustainable corporate and community ecosystems. S&P Global Market Intelligence understands the importance of accurate, deep and insightful information. It integrates financial and industry data, research and news into tools that help track performance, identify investment ideas, perform valuations and assess credit risk. Investment professionals, government agencies, corporations and universities around the world use this essential intelligence to make business and financial decisions with conviction. Increasingly, S&P Global products include an ESG lens, adding layers of insight to help its customers better inform strategies to generate alpha while building a sustainable future and meeting the expectations of an evolving market. ESG data and analytics assess the performance of companies and investment portfolios against financially material metrics to uncover market opportunities. With that in mind, today, I'm delighted to be joined by Liam Hines, EMEA Head of Capital Market Specialist, S&P Global Market Intelligence, and Matthias Horak, Lead Analyst, ESG Innovation and Analytics at S&P Global Market Intelligence, to discuss the complex and pressing topic of environmental, social, and governance strategy. Well, hi, both. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me today for the podcast. I thought it might be useful if you started by just introducing yourselves and telling us a little bit about your career and experience to date. Sure, David. Yeah, I'll, I'll kick off with that. Uh, my name is Liam Hines. I head up the uh, EMEA Capital Market Specialist team for S&P Market Intelligence. Um, joined S&P four years ago this month, actually, September 2016. And, and prior to that, I worked on the buy side. Uh, I was in investment management for almost a decade before that. Hi, David. Uh, let me join. Uh, it's Matyash uh, here, Matyash Horak. Uh, so I am a lead analyst and manager at Trucos, part of SMP. Uh, joined Trucos four years ago and currently part of their uh, ESG innovation and analytics team. And I mostly focus during my work on uh, different product development initiatives at the intersection of climate risk and financial risk. Uh, previously, I had been uh, working in the banking um, as well as being a credit analyst in B2B in various parts of Europe, uh, moving to London around five years ago. Excellent. Well, thank you both very much for taking the time to speak to me today. I'm really keen to, to have a conversation with you both about environmental, social and government issues. Um, and Liam, if I come to you first, you've carried out extensive research into the correlation between ESG and financial performance. And I think it would be really useful just to, to set a bit of background if you might be able to share some of the key findings of your of your research. 
Yeah, sure, sure thing, David. Um, well, first of all, maybe if we take a little bit of a step back and and have a think about how um, you know investment professionals incorporate ESG data into their overall investment framework, um, because there's 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 a multitude of different ways that you can um, incorporate ESG and, and uh, environmental data into your overall investment process. So. You know, there's there's one component that investment managers seem to be doing um, a lot lately, and, and it seems to be the very simplest way to do it, and it's exclusionary measures. So let's say you're looking at a particular index, let's say the S&P 500 or the S&P 1200. Um, uh, what, what investment managers potentially do is they screen out all the worst performing companies when it comes to an ESG metric or, or when it comes to another environmental uh, metric. Um, but the but the problem when you do that is is that you're left with a, um, a subset of that um, index um, that you have to construct a portfolio with, and because you've you've sliced a, a significant proportion of companies out of that index, the the ending portfolio is going to drift a lot a lot from those benchmark characteristics, you know, so that you know. Let's say you're you're looking at carbon and you're cutting carbon out of um, your portfolio. Well, the biggest offenders there in the S and P 500 are going to be utility companies and energy companies. Um, and if you exclude them, then the overall um, characteristics of your portfolio are going to are going to stray massively um, from from that benchmark. So th- there's that technique, um, and then another technique that we're trying to do at SMB American Intelligence, or at least try to highlight, is that you don't necessarily need to slice a lot of the companies out of your benchmark um, to have a much more ESG compliant or a much more um, environmentally friendly portfolio. Um, so instead of slicing them out, you know what we've done is you basically rank all the companies um, either on a country or a sector neutral uh, basis, and then you you basically overweight the companies that score the best uh, on a sector neutral basis. Uh, you still have some energy companies within your uh, portfolio, but they'll be the uh, best performing energy companies when it comes to let's say carbon or when it comes to your ESG score. Um, so that's that's what we've that's that's what I've written about recently is is that you can still have an ESG overlay uh, in your overall investment cycle, but you don't have to sacrifice. And the underlying benchmark characteristics to get to the end point. Um, so, you know, there's a couple of things that we did. Um, you know, uh, Matthias and I recently wrote a piece on the EU taxonomy um, and how uh, S&P Market Intelligence has a has a data set that's um, that's aligned to that EU taxonomy. Uh, Matthias can probably go into a little bit more detail on, on the EU taxonomy, but essentially, what it is is we have you know, 464 true cost, um, S&P true cost sectors that we've mapped back to the 67 business activities of the EU taxonomy. Um, And those 67 business activities in the EU taxonomy are either, um, you know, they're either mitigating uh, or adapting to climate change. Um, So when we've mapped back those sectors, it essentially means now that we, we can figure out which of those true cost S&P true cost sectors are mitigating to um, 
or adapting to climate change. And uh, what I did uh, in the analysis was I put a put a binary flag on those sectors. So um, I put a green a green flag on companies uh, on sectors that aligned to the EU taxonomy, i.e., mitigated climate change going forward. And I put a brown flag um, on those that didn't. And the the data set has a percentage of revenue that's um, aligned to those business activities. Um, and I basically for the analysis summed up that um, that green revenue exposure, shall we say. Um, and I treated that as a as a factor and I, I did some back tests on it. Um, long, long story short, without getting too technical, when you split um, a particular universe uh, down the middle between a, a, a company companies that are let's say green and companies that are brown, i.e., um, green being they have revenue allocated to adapting to uh, mitigating or adapting to climate change. Brown they don't have any. Uh, there wasn't any sacrifice in the overall return when you split those uh, companies into two portfolios. So it means that you could have a fully green portfolio that was adapting to climate change, but you didn't have to give up any of the returns associated with that. Um, but maybe, Matthias, you can you can probably talk a little bit more about the EU taxonomy if you wanted to. Wow, I think it was uh, such a good description that uh, <laughs> you're really challenging me. Sorry, uh, I, I stole your thunder there, uh, Matthias. Apologies. <laughs> no, no worries. Um, so, yeah, I think I think uh, that's a very good description of what what we did, and also the you know the data set that is behind the, the research that you've been leading. And uh, in terms of the data set, I would just wanted to basically highlight some of the key challenges. I think that I think that we we are already um, you know made a good progress towards you know sort of aligning. Uh, the data set and, and trying to um, create a methodology, create an approach around uh, identifying those companies uh, that could be partially or fully eligible uh, to be aligned with the with the data set. But the EU taxonomy itself, it's a, it's a very huge uh, and ambitious um, project that is is actually, uh, I believe that that is going to change in the future. And we can expect updates to it, and it's already, uh, you know, puts uh, investors and, and corporates uh, in the in the situation um, where, where they, it's really pushing towards more disclosure, uh, not just uh, in the in the sense that uh, you know showing the activities uh, that are potentially can be eligible, but also. Uh, basically, you know, defining those quantitative and qualitative thresholds and, and do no significant harm principles uh, that that companies and investors need to be um, address uh, need to address basically to consider themselves uh, uh, to be aligned. And I think that um, I don't want to, you know, basically we are we are uh, really going to already into the into the weeds of the conversation and and. Um, uh, really, the technical details of the taxonomy, uh, but but there are you know three major steps uh, in terms of you know measuring alignment. One is eligibility in terms of revenue and and capital expenditures. Um, the second is you know having a look at whether those uh, activities are potentially eligible, meeting the the preset thresholds that are uh, normally 
compliant with a two degree scenario uh, or even a more ambitious scenario. And then a third thing is to measure whether you know the companies are um, and the activities of the companies are not harming um, any of the any of the six um, basically environmental objectives that the that the taxonomy is is um, um, championing to to address. Uh, so it, it, it is not just that the the activities themselves need to be uh, need to be eligible, but they uh, they can only be fully aligned if those if they meet those thresholds and they if they meet the do not can harm principles. Other in a sense that they they do not harm any other environmental objectives outside of mitigation and adaptation that the taxonomy currently addresses. And what we have done with the data set is is really you know going a, a step beyond of, of you know potentially other uh, similar sort of green revenue data sets that are that are out there in the market and really try to create a data set that is um, in terms of uh, the green revenue share is being aligned with the taxonomy uh, taxonomy NACE activities. Uh, so. We did a very granular mapping, as I mentioned, to the true cost sectors, and uh, we are looking to address the the threshold uh, challenge and the doing significant harm challenge as well that the taxonomy is posing um, for investors. Yeah, matches probably makes sense as well. Just to almost just take a step back because there's there's so much ESG regulation probably being um, coming out of Europe initially, but. Yeah, but you know, basically, back in 2018, this EU taxonomy has has been has come from the European Commission, and um, you know, it's basically a, a policy framework that they've put into place um, for companies to be able to report on exactly where their revenue streams are coming from, right? Um, and 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 I think the key. Um, to the EU taxonomy is that companies are going to be required to disclose, um, you know, these revenue streams or or where their revenue is generated from. I think by by twenty twenty two. So, um, you know, so it's definitely an important um, uh, regulation to for investors in the next eighteen months. I think. Exactly. There are two major things. One is revenue alignment and the other is capex alignment. So one is the you know the current exposure of companies and the other is the direction of travel. And both are uh, equally important for the EU to look at. And obviously investors are the first uh, ones to be you know required to disclose. Uh, based on a taxonomy through, uh, throughout 2021. Yeah, so yeah. investors would basically have to have almost like an EU taxonomy rating on their portfolios, right? Um, and then that means the underlying um, companies will have to have at least some insight or transparency, uh, transparency as to where the revenue is generated from. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and corporates, I think well, corporates will, will receive some more guidance, uh, you know, throughout 2021, uh, but actually their disclosure will eventually help uh, data providers, uh, you know, such as Trucas, but also investors uh, in order to, you know, enhance the quality of their reporting as well, uh, because, you know, the, the corporates are a very important piece of this. Um, and, and so I think they will need some guidance. And, and one other important uh, thing what is needed is, is basically uh, you know, validation, validation of the disclosures, which is not currently um, 
you know, mandatory uh, and, and that's being part of the um, non-financial reporting disclosures. But uh, we, we might see that in the future, you know, emerge as well um, to, do, to because these regulations becoming more and more stringent. I mean, I think that takes me quite nicely to, to my next question, actually, because to my understanding, the classification system means that it requires companies and investment firms to radically change, as it states, the way that they report on, on their performance. And I'd be interested to find out from yourselves if you think that that will perhaps weed out those that don't take these com- commitments seriously. And also, it, it sets performance thresholds for companies and, and industries that, that seek to reduce their, I suppose, their footprint on the environment in terms of, I don't know, greenhouse gas emissions and, and climate change. So I'm really wondering how the, the companies are listed. There's about 6,000 EU listed companies. So how can they even start to put this into practice in real terms? Yeah, I think I'll take, I can probably take the first first part of that question. Um, so, I, you know, I suppose when you when you look at the adoption of, 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 of this framework, you know, I think regulatory bodies are probably playing the smart card here in, in, in requesting investors and investment managers to report on this initially. Um, and the reason that I think that's a smart move is, is that at the end of the day, the investors are the shareholders of the underlying companies that are represented in their portfolios, and they're going to be the driving force and putting pressure on the corporates of the companies to be able to report all these metrics in the first place. So if you think about it, it's the investors will be will be penalizing companies that aren't necessarily uh, reporting or disclosing um, all of this underlying data because they essentially wouldn't be able to, if, if they don't have that data, they won't be able to report that data and aggregate it up at a portfolio level. So I think, you know, I think that's one component is that eventually there's just going to be greater need for corporates to start uh, reporting this data because shareholders at the end of the day are going to be requesting and requiring which is, um, that information. So definitely there's a, there's a push needed uh, from, uh, from investor side uh, for corporates to you know, start enhancing their quality of reporting on uh, e-taxonomy online activities. I think uh, two, two things I would like to uh, mention here. Um, one is, you know, the, the taxonomy report provides a couple of examples uh, for companies or corporates, uh, you know, how to, um, you know, start uh, identifying those activities they're having as essentially uh, aligned with the taxonomy. Uh, I, I believe that from my personal point of view, uh, some, some of these are, are very straightforward and, and, and maybe when it really comes to, um, uh, you know, the, the disclosure, the material disclosure uh, from the corporate side, it might be a little bit more challenging uh, to identify all those potentially eligible activities. Uh, so, for example, that are, you know, examples of, you know, some manufacturers you know, issuing um, green bonds that are aligned with the green bond framework and, and um, using the, the, the proceeds of financing for, you know, increasing efficiency, uh, energy efficiency. And, and, and those, are, those are examples that are, you know, are very straightforward. Um, but there are, uh, there could be activities, uh, and, and I would like to mention here the distinction between transition and enabling activities that the taxonomy defines. Um, 
these are basically transitional activities that are uh, are those that are either directly mitigating the effects of climate change or uh, could be potentially shifted towards in terms of technology uh, to be you know lower carbon activities uh, such as some manufacturing stuff or aluminium or steel, uh, for example. And then there are enabling activities which are a little bit you know harder to to grasp because they are more you know indirectly. Um, uh, helping, you know, mit- mitigating climate change or adapting to climate change. Uh, so those are basically creating uh, services and, and products for for the transitional activities, in a sense. And so um, there the, the, there will be, you know, challenges remaining. But I, I think that um, the investors are currently, you know, trying to find out what are the data gaps. Uh, how could these be filled? Uh, there's a, there are very interesting case studies. Um, you know, put forward by, by the PRI, for example, very recently, just a couple of days ago, uh, coming from around 30, 40, uh, you know, asset managers, asset owners, uh, where they disclosed, uh, you know, how they how they try to align, um, how they try to measure the alignment or eligibility of their portfolios with the with the taxonomy. And, and the, you know, the, in some cases, lack of data and comprehensive data availability uh, is it's very much a very much an issue, you know, using different data sources uh, to to try to coach uh, the alignment. So it's very challenging. That's why I, I don't want to undermine obviously the, the the huge and and very good ambition of the the EU itself with this taxonomy. But it also means, and this is totally normal, uh, that these challenges will will surface, uh, and it will require us. Um, uh, data providers, for example, such as Trucas, who has a huge environmental uh, data set um, and a very good data collection procedures that we can leverage to, you know, to fill those gaps. Um, and so, yeah, these are this is what I wanted to mention. So, in addition to to what Liam said, yeah, just a, just a just a quick follow up on that as well is that this this regulatory framework is basically in its infancy, right? And it is the first time these 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 regulatory bodies and these government bodies are starting to implement this framework. Um, you know, I, I kind of make the comparison to when IFRS or, or gap accounting was first put into place. Any company that was reporting its financials had to adhere to that particular framework or that particular accounting framework. And that, that was put in place to, to mitigate companies defrauding potential shareholders um, with uh, reporting incorrect numbers or or, uh, or fraudulent numbers. I kind of make the comparison here that this framework is being put in place by by, by governments and, and regulatory bodies globally and in order for companies to, to not defraud the global population when it comes to um, ESG factors. Um, and, you know, there's potentially going to be pushback from, from companies initially um, but you know that that's always going to be the case when you're when you're kind of building a framework from scratch. You know, I think in five or or ten years' time, I think this is just going to be a, a well-established framework, and, and companies will be well-versed in in um, reporting and disclosing all of the underlying information. 
But then picking up, I suppose, on the, on the points you're making about this being in its infancy and also that there could be the potential for pushback from organisations, I think it's fair to say that in the past, investors have chosen to invest in a company that appeared to be well-governed in climate risk or was working to make incremental improvements on its carbon footprint. But it, it sounds like now investors were able to actually directly compare the performance and environmental records to the taxonomy thresholds. So, Two questions, really, I suppose, there. Do you see a sea change in responsible investing? And also, what about companies that, that just don't want to adhere to the taxonomy in the short term? Um, how effective will it realistically be in combating greenwashing? Yeah, look, I, I think we're definitely already seeing a sea change in respons- responsible investing. You know, start of this year, BlackRock's chairman and CEO, Larry Fink, uh, wrote an open letter to CEOs of companies globally. You know, he basically called out every CEO to recognize that climate change was becoming a defining factor in companies' long-term prospects. And, um, you know, he believes we're definitely on the edge of a fundamental reshaping of finance. You know, he, he in, in emphatically stated that climate risk is investment is investment risk, and you know let's not forget BlackRock, you know manages over seven trillion dollars globally and is is a significant proportion of investors globally. So, I, you know, there's definitely a sea change um, in this. You know, I think this might be a generational thing, but I think I might be, or we might be the last generation that sees a difference between pre and post ESG. You know, I think, I think the children of tomorrow, of tomorrow are, um, are definitely ESG is, is just going to be embedded into the, into the framework. And, um, you know, I think when they look, when we look, when they look back 20, 30, 40 years ago to the early 2000s, they won't, they won't even believe that we made investment decisions without having at least some kind of ESG framework or ESG um, policy component in place. I would like to, I would like to jump in here and, and, um, and uh, you know, underline the importance again of, of, of verification uh, of, of disclosure. Um, so, you know, my, my, it might be that I, I play the, the, the role of the bad cop here, but uh, but I, I but first of all I agree uh, there is there is a sea change it has been happening and it's you know it's it's ever stronger uh, and I think the e taxonomy uh, it definitely just helps to you know to build on that momentum and uh, you know further you know increase greater awareness uh, around around climate change. Uh, greater, you know, ever greater requirements, and thereby not just affecting, you know, the the uh, the views of of um, and uh, and sort of ambitions and and uh, activities and disclosure quality of of European companies, but basically having a, having a global effect. Um, as you know, as, as many actors look at the EU as, as being uh, somewhat. A, who is leading by example um, in in this case? And we, for example, um, being approached by many many uh, clients and prospective clients from North America, who were very you know interested in in it, not just because of their um, you know huge portion of investment in in European companies, uh, 
uh, but basically you would like they would like to carry out assessment for from other parts of their portfolio as well uh, because uh, they, they know that um, that these requirements are actually um, being either qualitative or quantitative really help you know to push uh, but the quality of assessment towards uh, you know having a better look at you know what part of the portfolio is really really green and really um, 1.5 or 2 degree aligned um, without having a huge um, uh, negative environmental impact uh, so and and again coming back to to verification which taxonomy currently does not explicitly require um, but I think that um, uh, a formal verification process um, in in the in a, in a short term period uh, might come into place uh, for the non financial reporting directive and uh, and the taxonomy itself and that could really help you know address uh, you know the, the question of the question of greenwashing uh, you, know, na- you know national local authorities uh, and supervisor supervisors will need to monitor uh, the compliance by by financial market participants. Uh, with taxonomy disclosure obligation, and and that is very good, and that is a very good step. But um, when verification formally comes into place, I think that that could be uh, another game changer. So just to, to sum up the, the the conversation, I suppose it, it it would be wrong if we didn't sort of bring the the, the sort of role of business schools and, and MBAs um, into the conversation. Um, and it, Amber and BGA is currently carrying out its, its largest ever um, study into, into the impact that business schools and MBAs are making in climate change. So it's a topic very close to my heart at the moment. Now, what we found is like, firstly, perhaps unexpectedly, COVID-19 has caused a really positive impact in terms of environmental beliefs. So there's obviously fewer flights, lower traffic. Um, we've seen news stories about emergence of wildlife during international lockdowns. So my first question is, do you think that this will be enough of an impetus for business leaders to want to retain some of these sustainable practices going forward? And also following on from that, I suppose MBA graduates represent the leaders of tomorrow in terms of trailblazing for responsible management. So I'd be really interested in your advice for both business schools and also for MBAs in terms of further developing responsible management and ESG imperatives in cohorts, students and businesses as they move forward. I know that's a massive question, but I thought it might be a nice place to finish. Yeah, I definitely think the role of business schools um, will play. I actually think it's it's just going to be naturally organic. You know, I think the organic shift in culture that um implants into the leaders of tomorrow like i said you know we we you know our kids are going to look back on us in 20 or 30 years time and, and try to come to terms with the fact that we we potentially um led the capital markets without any esg overview so you know i think i think that shift has already happened happening like let's think about the old mantra that executive management have for their shareholders right you know that ma- that mantra is, is to maximize shareholder value Frankly, I think that mantra probably needs to be updated a little bit. Okay, so yes, executive management have a priority to maximize shareholder value. But I think they also have a priority to consider the global indirect costs of doing so. So, so far, the focus is, let's say for the previous century, the focus had been on um, uh, enhancing financial results. But, but in doing so, may come at a human cost through not adhering to environmental, social, and government components. So, you know, 
David, to echo your introduction, it's it's imperative for investment in, in resilient and sustainable corporate and community ecosystems. So, you know, maybe the new mantra is to maximize shareholder value through investment in resilient and sustainable corporate and community ecosystems, I think. So I think the mantra I think the mantra probably needs to be changed. But I think, you know, I think business school, schools, I don't even think they necessarily need to have an agenda. I think I think they're probably going to be driving the culture and the leaders of tomorrow. And I think that will organically happen. COVID-19 has really rapidly disrupted the business norms and, and probably, uh, you know, created new preferences and, and, and practices that are, sustained could also lead to uh, permanent direct emissions reduction. And, you know, I, I don't really want to get into like daily life questions, but I think we all pose to, to ourselves going through this, this pandemic um, in terms of the, the values that are important for ourselves and, and what, what could be um, the changes arising from this pandemic that, could, that we could keep as, as permanent. But definitely things to think about is, you know, remote teleworking, increased digital social connecting. Um, you know, the, there are many, many um, nationalized supply chains on 3D printing, so many, many examples. And there's a sea of uh, analytics that is, is being created now by, um, you know, thought leaders and, and uh, companies such as, such as SMP and then the market intelligence and that section of SMP and, and TrueCost as well. And really, I, I just want to, you know, tie it back to, to some numbers that, for example, TrueCost um, has come up with while looking at the implications of of COVID-19 and how these opportunities could be harnessed. For example, 7% reduction in freight shipments in the shipping sector and 40% reduction in, in business travel in the aviation sector could help align the industries with a two-degree climate scenario by 2030. Uh, some governments are are also you know, stepping up and then trying to look at the opportunity side of this pandemic. And if you look at, for example, the EU's um, you know, recovery plan that has a substantial uh, part that is is uh, basically aiming at um, uh, recovery uh, measures that are that are green uh, and that's also are, are trying to green uh, the economy. Uh, China recently announced uh, to become. Uh, potentially net uh, zero carbon by 2060, uh, with the peaking of, it, of its emissions by uh, 2030. Uh, and so uh, there are very uh, many good examples that we can look at, you know, not just um, from our daily lives, but also what, what um, leaders in the, you know, in the, in the, in the government domain uh, are trying to to, to do to, to look at the upsides of, of, um, of the pandemic, if, if that is a good term to be used. Um, but it, it, it's really, um, it, it, there, there are really, you know, opportunities to look at it, even if it's just, even if it's just look at, you know, how many, how many times in, in your past you, you traveled by uh, air for, for a one-day uh, you know, a meeting or a one-day conference that, that all these sort of quick wins that, that could be harnessed by by business leaders. And um, and the last thing I, I would mention is is the uh, is the race to zero uh, that was recently announced by the UNFCCC uh, for COP26 uh, that includes those um, 
around a thousand uh, you know companies with their business leaders who really um, are um, you know aiming to to harness the the um, the potentials um, uh, that that uh, you know the potentials that are are, are hiding in the momentum is basically could could be sort of ever greater by 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 the by the awareness that this pandemic is is uh, potentially creating us. So um, I'm trying to finish on a positive note. Absolutely. Um, I think that's all we've got time for. So thank you both so much for taking the time to speak to me today. Um, really, really grateful for your insight and your support. So thank you very much again. Pleasure, Dave. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you once again to Liam and Matthias for speaking to me today and sharing their insight. And thank you once again to S&P Global Market Intelligence for supporting us in bringing you this podcast. If you want to find out more about S&P Global Market Intelligence, visit www.spglobal.com.